Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you're joining us. The Bible Nerd Podcast is a listener-supported ministry, and we are currently in our summer chat series, and this will be our last episode of the series. Thank you for meeting up with me each week to discuss things that are pressing on my heart and that I believe are vital to our Christian walk. Today, we are taking a closer look at Mark chapter 5's account of Jesus and the demoniac. Let's dive in. Before we just jump into the middle of the book of Mark, we need to establish a little context. We should always do this before reading something um, to interpret the true intent of what God was saying in the word instead of just taking it as it is and interpreting it for ourselves. So starting in Mark chapter 4, so we're actually going to back up a chapter. It says that Jesus was by the sea and begin to preach a series of parables. Well, we know that this sea is Galilee, and so there's really nothing unusual here. This is where, this is the region where Jesus really set up the main part of his ministry, and the crowd grew so big that Jesus had to get in a boat to teach. Now, this region was also a very um, conservative part of Israel. And so you had the most conservative Jews that lived there. They lived by the law. They, for the most part, wanted to live according to God's word. And everything about their lifestyle was conservative too. So we are going to start in Mark 4, verse 35. It says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion and the disciples woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, there's a lot going on here that I want to discuss, and like I said before, I'm going somewhere with today's message, but this is a summer chat, so we're going to just sit and talk about all of the things that we can pull out of the text along the way, even if it isn't the main point that I want to get across today. So, one of the things that stuck out to me was that Jesus gets in a boat They head to the other side, and Mark mentions there was also other boats with him. And usually when an author does this, it's because it's foreshadowing something that's going to happen in the future where that sentence is going to be a part of the story, but there's never anything else ever mentioned in the story about the other boats. When something in the text sticks out to you like that, and you think, well, that's weird, or that doesn't fit here, or that's odd... Usually that's a sign to stop and pause because the author was communicating something. Now, unfortunately today, because this isn't even where we're staying, I'm teaching on chapter five. I didn't have time to research it, but I'm just teaching you along the way. And maybe that's something you want to go back to and research. Why did Mark include that? So it also, um, or I also wanted to bring up that in the ancient world, people were afraid of the sea, and it was a very common belief to pagans that there was a god of the sea. He went by different names, Yam being one of them, and that this god needed to be appeased and sacrificed to. Well, this belief system influenced the Jewish community, and even if they didn't equate the sea with that god, they certainly feared the power that the sea held. Now, I believe Um, what we see here is spiritual warfare. Jesus is leaving his territory, 
that recognize Yahweh as God and going to a different land to do something big. So back at the beginning, it says, let us go to the other side. We will be talking in a little bit what the other side was, but this was not going to be Jewish territory. And remember when we talked in Daniel, we kind of addressed the fact that in the ancient world, they believed that different little G gods were over different lands. For example, if we looked at the promised land where Israel is, everyone in the ancient world would have agreed that, oh, Yahweh was the God that ruled over that land and that soil. But there were different gods that would rule over different areas and the locals would worship the God that they believed ruled. Now, Dr. Michael Hazard has a great work on this called The Unseen Realm, where he believes that what they were recognizing, these little G-gods, were actually demonic spirits that at the Tower of Babel, when Jesus um, separated the people, that he also scattered a divine council that he had created, that some of them had fallen away from him. He had also scattered them among the nations and allowed them to rule certain areas, but he took Israel as an inheritance for himself. It's a very interesting teaching. Teaching. Nonetheless, in verse 39 of chapter 4, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, and I believe this was in a frustrated voice, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Remember, in Jewish prophecy, for years and years and years, and all of these Jewish boys and girls would have known that there was a coming Messiah. And there were clues that he was going to be the divine son of God, born of a virgin in Nazareth. But the clues were very tiny. Prophecy is meant to be in a way to communicate to God's people about coming events, but also have it be so subtle and... um, hidden that the demonic realm aren't getting firsthand information about his plans. And so it's almost like a puzzle sometimes. And so in the Jewish mind, this was going to be a great prophet that was going to come, just a man, definitely not somebody divine. And so these type situations where they see Jesus speak to the wind and the waves and everything obeys him is still mind-blowing to the disciples. I mean, they are asking, who is this? Because he speaks and the wind and waves obey him. So this is a powerful moment for them. But here we are in chapter 5, and this is where I wanted to get at today. Chapter 5 starts, and it says, They went across the lake, remember the Sea of Galilee, to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, we are going to stop here because there is a lot to unpack, and it's all very interesting. And this is why context matters. Years ago when I was studying, I did not understand the names. Like, that's even weird. A lot of them are weird to pronounce. And so I would just be like Charlie Brown's teacher and say, oh, they went across the lake to the regions of the blah, blah, blah. I mean, I really would say that in my mind. And who cares? Doesn't matter. Yes, context matters. And there's so much more richness that we can get out of the text if we understand this. So what is the Gerasenes? Well, to the east 
of the Sea of Galilee was a section of land where 10 Roman colonies were. It was known as the Decapolis, meaning 10 cities. This is where Jesus was headed, and good Jewish boys did not go there. By good Jewish boys, I mean fully devoted to God. Okay, remember those of you that went through Daniel with me. There was a lot of talk about the Greek Empire, and after Alex the Great died, the kingdom was divided into four sections with his four generals taking over each territory. We spent so much time between the kings of the north and south. That was the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid Empire. I'm bringing this up today because we spent so much time with them that, that and we kind of finally understand them, that this is going to be useful for today to understand how these territories got set up. They were the ones who founded this area and began influencing the Jews with their Hellenistic worldview. But in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey, which we talked about in Daniel, brought this region under Rome's dominion and he incorporated these cities. It was then that the section became known as the Decapolis, the 10 cities, even though it really comprised more than 10 cities. And we're familiar with some of them. Damascus was in the section, Philadelphia, Hipposutza is in the text. And here we are in chapter five in the Gerasenes. These cities were extremely Hellenistic. At its core, Hellenism is humanism. So listen to this description. It glorifies human beings above all else. Basically, that humans are going to become their own gods. And the human body is the ultimate physical beauty. See, we think, well, yeah, it is. (laughs) But in the ancient world, this was not the case for all religions and all people groups. They also believe that truth can only be discovered and known through the human mind reasoning. We believe that the truth comes in the text. We cannot reason, but we have to line up our thoughts with scripture to see what truth is because many times our thoughts lead us astray. They also believe that excess pleasure was the crucial goal in life. There was glorification of sexuality, violence, and wealth, sport, education, and theater, which would be entertainment, were values that permeated society. Does any of this sound familiar? We live in a society that embraces Hellenism and took it to the next level. In fact, this can sound so familiar that we don't even recognize that this isn't God's way. Hellenism is so steeped in our society that it can lead us to believe that it is normal. This worldview really is not even new to Hellenism. It actually goes back to the seven pagan Canaanite nations who Joshua had to drive out once they entered the promised land. These nations, or these people groups, they worshiped Baal and ate pigs that were sacrificed to idols. They used child sacrifice and sexual perversions in their worship. And the people of the Decapolis had just continued these practices under a new name. Well, the devout Jews of the Galilee struggled against this pagan worldview. We see the same struggle in our society today. Like the Pharisees, some Christians can create a slew of rules to follow so that their children or their congregation won't fall into the trap of this worldview. We, we see this all the time. Other people groups will segregate themselves like the, the Essenes did, but we even see that in our society today. They will seclude themselves from everyone and live apart, set apart, completely apart. And then we still see others embrace its lure. This would have been the Hellenistic Jews. And they settle to merge the two worldviews, embracing both. In fact, um, 
I thought this was interesting in archaeology. These Hellenistic Jews would have lived in these societies. They would have gotten closer and closer to um, Roman colonies because they would have enjoyed all of the things that come with Rome. I mean, there is economy. There is luxurious things that make life easier. Well, in archaeology, they began to um, excavate some of these Jewish homes. And in all Roman colonies, one of the popular things in homes were these beautiful mosaic floors. And um, that was something that, you know, you know they, they embraced the art and this was beauty. And so they laid mosaic floors. Well, in the Galilee area, there was very conservative homes with dirt floors. But if you found the Hellenistic homes, the Jewish homes that were living closer to the Decapolis, they found that they also had mosaic floors. In their mosaic scenes, there would have been scenes from the ancient stories that we find in the Old Testament. So at its core, you can think, okay, there's nothing wrong with mosaic floors. And they were actually using it for good. They were using it to remember the stories of old as pictures. But what archaeologists found is that these scenes from Old Testament stories were in the common places that neighbors could have come to. But as they entered closer into the bedroom, the scenes moved from these stories of remembering God to very erotic, graphic scenes of sexuality. And so what these Hellenistic Jews were doing was they were still embracing things of their Jewish faith and in the open, in the commonplace, that's what they wanted to display, but they had a secret place where sexual sins or other type sins would be on display. And I think that is just such a picture of human nature. When we live a life with two worldviews, we will keep one, our faith out in the open, but we will suppress and hide the, the, the sinful part of our lives. And I just thought, oh, people are people. They never change. But as we follow Christ, we are to be not separated from this world and not fully embracing it and not setting up a whole bunch of rules for people to follow. We are supposed to be in this world, but not of it. That means we stay so connected to the vine that a natural byproduct, byproduct of our life is that we are when we are convicted, we begin to back away, realizing, oh, we've got too much into this world system. We've got to back away. I'm going to give you an ex- a story to kind of illustrate this. Um, last summer, my um, newly his entire family went up to North Carolina to help his brother on a mission trip in Charlotte. And while we were up there, people knew that we lived near Cajun country. And so they said, you've got to check out this Cajun restaurant. It's in Charlotte and it is so wonderful. And so we drove there and it was closed that night, but it was in a really cool um, hipster section of town. It was called Noda. I think that's how you say it. it stands for North Davidson district. And it was just a really cool place. There were shops, there were coffee shops, there was like art murals painted everywhere, lots of things um, to do, lots of bars. So while we were there and we were starving and it took us an hour to get there, we decided to walk around and find a restaurant. Well, Newly and I had ridden in a different vehicle than my oldest daughter, Eden. And so we all met up on the street in front of this Cajun restaurant and her eyes were as big as saucers. I mean, we literally had all just parked and walked there. Her eyes were as big as saucers. And as soon as she saw me, she whispered, I don't like it here. And I was like, Edie, like, 
I don't know what to tell you. And she just kept saying, I don't like it here. I don't feel good. She was feeling something in her spirit that didn't set right. Well, we were hungry and we weren't going to get in the car to drive anywhere else. So I just made her deal with it. Well, we ended up in a restaurant and her feelings began to grow. I could see tears welling up in her eyes. She was so uncomfortable. She was coming out of her own skin. And I was looking at this mural painted on the wall behind her. And it, all of the things here were very esoteric, um, new agey. And there were these skulls on the wall. And it was just an interesting, to say the least, painting. And as I honed in on it, it was a an advertisement for some sort of alcohol. But it wasn't really where it stood out. But the closer I looked, I was like, oh, that is a Ouija board. And everything clicked to me suddenly. I had not really even been sensitive to what Edie was going through, but what she was feeling was deep, something spiritual that was deep. And what I would say that of course, she didn't have control to leave, but there we have those feelings. God gives us those feelings when we are dabbling with something that we shouldn't be dabbling with, and we need to walk away from it immediately. Um, and what we cannot do is just set up a, a system of rules to be good. Like as she got older, I could say, Edie, you're not allowed to go to that section of Noda. I want her to have a heart so cultivated in Christ that when she goes there, she feels uncomfortable. We also can't run and hide and seclude ourselves like the Essenes do and never go down to a place like Noda because there's a lost and dying world there that needs to hear Jesus. But we also can't be like the Hellenistic Jews that just go and set up shop and live there and combine the lifestyle of Noda to the lifestyle of Christianity. Um, so there is this tension that we even see today in the churches in Christianity. We see the Pharisees. We see people who just set up a million rules to live by. We see the Hellenistic Jews where we're going to, those people are going to embrace both worldviews. And we see the Essenes, people who just separate, never want to be apart. Well, this is where Jesus is showing us, showing us what to do in this chapter. He shows up on the other side and he is going to Show us exactly how it's done. So let's dive into the chapter. He went over to the Gerasenes. That is completely um, a Hellenistic territory. In, in verse 2, it says, When Jesus got out of the boat, notice that the disciples did not. Jesus got out of the boat. And they are learning. We're going to give them grace. But it says, A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to even subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Once again, Satan is going to meet Jesus at the shore. Let's talk about this man. First, he was a Gentile. That would have been to the Jews naturally unclean, even if he was the most upstanding of people. He was demon-possessed. They would have recognized him as being unclean. He was living among the tombs. Jewish people were not allowed to touch tombs or go through areas where there were tombs. Unclean. He cut himself, so he was oozing blood unclean. And he lived near a pig pen, unclean. Everything about this situation would have spoken to Jews to stay away from because they would have had to gone through so many rituals just to go back to the temple that day. And it just wasn't worth it to them. But Jesus is showing them, I call you to be separate and set apart, but that doesn't mean to avoid these people. It is worth 
the, the ceremony that we're going to have to go through to go back to the temple. And Jesus would have gone through that ceremony. But this is why the boys are staying in the boat. They, their rules kept them from meeting people where they were. Verse 6 says, when he saw Jesus from the distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted out, this is what have been the demons talking in him. He shouted out at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. It's funny how demons wanted grace, even though they were giving none to the man, but it's also mind-blowing And it would have been, remember the disciples saw him um, calm the sea and they asked who this is. And God has a funny way of using demons to tell the disciples exactly who this was. This was Jesus, son of the most high God. Remember, there's little G gods all in this region that is being worshiped. And these demons are saying, oh, this guy that just walked on the shore, he's son of the most high. So this was a radical moment in the lives of the disciples and everyone that was watching this scene unfold. Jesus said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. This is something that just kind of blows my mind as well, because we see in um, historical church history that there were all kinds of rituals to perform for an exorcist or an exorcism. But this was something very simple. In the name of Jesus, he just commanded them. He had that much authority. He just commanded them to come out. Um, From the get-go, this evil spirit was completely submissive and fearful of Christ, and he knew exactly who Christ was. And we have... Christ spirit living inside of us. So Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he says, my name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again, not to send him out of the area. Legion is war terminology. A legion is 1000 Roman troops. Now we don't know if he literally meant that there were a thousand demons in this man, but what we can conclude is there were a lot and they all recognized who Jesus was and was trembling. They were trembling in his presence. Well, a large herd of pigs in verse 11 was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Verse 14, pay attention to this. Those tending the pigs, so the pig tenders, or the pig shepherds, I don't know what a tender of pigs would be called except a pig tender. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and countryside and people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there and dressed in his right mind and they were afraid. Those who had seen it and told the people what had happened to the demon possessed man and told, they, they told what had happened to the demon possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plea with Jesus to leave their region. Did you hear that? They heard and saw this miracle and they begged Jesus to leave. Well, Matthew 8 tells us the same story. And in his version in verse 34, he recorded that the whole town came out and asked Jesus to leave. The whole town. We see that there was no saving power in the testimony of the pig tender. 
He wasn't saved, and this wasn't his story to tell. He was simple, simply relaying the information, and that information had zero power. But in verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Of course he did. When people have an encounter with Jesus, they want to stay in his presence. Verse 19, Jesus did not let him. This could feel like major rejection. And I know today many of you have felt like Jesus did not let you do something that you wanted to do for him. But he responded, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Sometimes when Jesus tells us no, it's because he has even bigger plans for his kingdom and to use us in that plan. So in verse 20, it says, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. They were all amazed. Okay, now Jesus asked him to stay and testify about the goodness of God. Look at the power of his testimony. In two more chapters, Mark 7, verse 31, we see Jesus return to this region and he's going to preach and feed a crowd of 4,000 people. This is one of the great stories of the breaking of the food and it multiplying in the Gospels. Many people wonder why that this story is there two times. One time with a recording of 5,000 people, that was in Jewish territory, and this time with a crowd of 4,000 people, that was in the Decapolis, that was in Gentile territory. There's two different stories with two different messages. But what we see here was that his testimony led to 4,000 people showing up when Jesus came back. This crazy, lunatic, unclean, demon-possessed man spent one evening with Messiah, was set free, and effectively evangelized one of the hardest regions to reach. Great redemption stories can produce a great awakening in others, and we have to share our stories. Your region is depending on you. Your story paired with the Holy Spirit inside of you can produce supernatural conversions. What I'm asking you this morning is, will you go to the other side? Those uncomfortable places where lost and hurting people are. Will you get in their mess with the truth of God's word and in love? We all know the memes that we've all seen them about Jesus eating with sinners. And a lot of times these memes are used to justify being a part of the world and embracing it, the Hellenistic worldview. God never intended that. He always confronted sin head on, but with overwhelming, audacious love. And he showed them a path to freedom. Those who took the challenge were forever changed and in turn led many people to him. God is calling some of you to stop living in the Decapolis worldview. He wants you to get right, confess, repent, and turn away from sin. He wants you to be set apart. He wants you to be in this world, but not of it. This morning or this afternoon or whenever you're listening, God is calling some of you to get out of the boat, not to stay in like the disciples did, but to share your story. Some other people out there need to hear that you had an abortion and how God restored you or about your failed marriage or about drug use or alcoholism or depression or mental illness or adultery or whatever story is yours. They need to hear how the goodness of God saved and delivered you from that and how you are changed. People need to see that your life is changed because it will give them hope and faith that he can do it for them.
So many times we want to personify ourselves as we are perfect and always was. Well, how does that give hope to anyone who is struggling? But if people don't hear our glorified stories of sin, don't glorify it like it was wonderful, but what it was, this is who I was before Christ. This is who I am now because of him. He changed me, he transformed me, and he can do it for you. It will build hope and it will bring and draw people near. God is still calling others of you to cross the other side. I don't know where that is for you to go. It's somewhere outside of your comfort zone, though. It may be to another country, or it may just be across town to a place that you're not comfortable going. Ask the Holy Spirit what he is speaking to you today. Well, this is the end of our summer chat series. Summer's winding down. It's getting close to the beginning of school, and I will be taking the month of August off. Our church will be doing a 21-day time of prayer and fasting, and I just want to invite you, if you want to come and utilize any of this time to pray, our doors are always open from August 8th to 28th, from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock every night, but Sundays and Wednesdays, our doors will be open. Come, just use that time just to get away and to focus and to pray for whatever it is that you're praying for this year. Well, I am so excited to reveal to you guys first what we what study we'll be heading into in September. So at the very beginning of September, I believe that is September 4th, it is actually September 1st, we will be kicking off our new study of the book of Romans. I will give the introduction of the book that week. So what I encourage you to do is start inviting people to join you. If you are in a church that participates in small groups, start a small group. Invite people to be a part of that. If you just have a group of friends that you think, you know what, these girls would love getting together once a week and we will talk about Romans, I promise you, you will not be disappointed. I will walk you through every step of the way. I will be here every Thursday morning to do a teaching. I believe that I'm going to try to do both podcast and Facebook Live. And this is just going to be a sweet time for us to dig into God's Word together and to learn how to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through us, that we don't have to listen to other people's messages, that, but we can dig in. Now, I know that you're thinking, well, that's an oxymoron. You're asking us to tune into you. All I'm here for on Thursdays is to maybe explain the parts that you didn't understand. And I promise each week you will grow and understand more on your own. This is going to be a fun time. I can't wait to see you. It's been a great summer. Thank you for joining me. Happy reading and see you September 1st.